Take your Bibles and look at uh, Mark chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 14 to 29. What I want to do this morning is I want to give us an overview, really, of Mark 1 through Mark 6 and verse 29, and I want to show and I want us to see together how Mark has woven these two great stories, John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus together, that gives us an idea about discipleship. And the title of the message is The Cross-Shaped Shadow. And it's a shadow that Mark creates as he writes that sort of bears across all of his writings. It's about how the Lord Jesus has called us to discipleship. But discipleship not the way the 21st century sees it. Discipleship the way I believe Mark and John and the apostles and Paul and the readers of the first century understood discipleship. We see discipleship very much is the benefits that we enjoy because of what Christ has done. We talk much about the benefits that we have, and we should. There's nothing wrong with that. But there is another whole aspect to discipleship that I think in the 21st century and even the last decades of the previous century, we lost sight of. The idea that discipleship is not just to come and enjoy all the benefits that Christ has won and purchased for us on a cross. It's an invitation. It's a call. It's a command to come and share in his life, in his suffering, in his death, in his persecution. Discipleship means to walk with Jesus. We talk about following Jesus. But so many of us follow him to a point and then begin to step back. We want the benefits. We like, I hate to use the term, but friends with benefits, meaning we get to have the friendship and all the benefits, but no responsibility, no accountability that goes with it. And that I do not believe is what the Bible talks about when it talks about discipleship. Well, let's read together. It is a story, as you'll remember when we go through it, of it's a story, Mark 6, 14 to 29, about how uh, John is arrested, his time in prison, what Herod does with him, and so on, the dance of Salome and all the rest of it. And we're going to look at that story in a lot of detail next week. But I want to just use it as a basis to look at the whole of Mark 1 all the way to the end of Mark 6, or Mark 6 and verse 29. So let's read together. It says in verse 14 of Mark 6, And King Herod heard of it, and that's the fact that they were going around preaching and so on. And it says, For his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, He is Elijah, and others were saying, He is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist.'" 
And immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths, oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Loving Father, this morning again, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your word. Father, we pray that the power of the Spirit of God would move amongst us and he would revive us according to your word. Father, help us to hear and see the call of Jesus to come and follow me in a new way, in a deeper way. Father, help us to count the cross and count the cost of following Christ all the way to a cross. Father, this life is a cross-shaped life that you have laid out before us. And we plead with you, O God, that you would move amongst us, that you would speak to the heart of every single person in this room. Awaken us, O God, to faith and repentance. Father, fill us with joy as we consider what Christ has done and where he is leading Father, we pray for the resolute steadfastness of John the Baptist who followed all the way, even to a sword and the losing of his head. Father, we ask you these things and we plead with you for help. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, Mark 1 to 6 weaves the story of John's ministry and suffering and death into the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the disciples' early ministry. John's life and suffering and death outlined in Mark 1 through 6 foreshadows Jesus' life and his suffering and death. It's a a cross-shaped shadow across the whole of the book. From beginning to end, the message of Mark's readers is the call to follow Jesus Christ. And that call to his disciples is a call to come and die so that we may live and share in his life, in his ministry, his suffering and his death. It's a call to discipleship that is radically, totally countercultural to all that we will ever see and hear from the world we live in. This world we live in is in love with self and in love with what I get and what I deserve and what I need. And there is simply no way that we will ever make a message like this acceptable today's culture. It will only become irresistingly, irresistibly acceptable to us as Christ himself works in us and changes us from the inside out. It's a work of God. It's the only way it'll ever happen. Now, before we consider what the text of Mark 6 says to us about uh, the message of Herod and, and, and John, it's a great story, and the theme there is a story of fear. John the Baptist who feared God and Herod who feared man and how the two worked completely counter to each other. We'll look at that next week. Mark is a very carefully chosen book. He weaves stories together. Mark has created a beautiful, large tapestry of stories out of a vast array of material. You think about all the stories of Jesus that could have been told and Mark takes 15 chapters. He devotes one third to one week of Jesus' life. He ignores the first 30 years and just the last little bit there. And even out of that he's just filtering down and pushing aside and he picks very carefully chosen stories and he lines them all up and he puts them all together to weave a beautiful picture and it's a call of the gospel 
Now, what I want to do, I've given you one thing to look at, and you think I was going to give you two, but I just didn't want to make three pieces of paper in there. So for the sake of paper, and you can listen along. What I've done is I've gone through Mark 1 through 6 and kind of unraveled all the different storylines and kind of put them together. So what you want to do, if you've got a paper Bible, you're going to be ahead. Open your Bible, put one finger in Mark 1 and one finger in Mark 6, and you're going to kind of flip back and forth, and I'm going to show you the storyline. And what I want you to see is how Mark has just taken the whole chronological account and put everything in in different places, but he's telling a story. He's making a point, okay? So if you take your Bibles, flip back to Mark 1, you're going to see in verse first eight verses that John the Baptist comes and he's preaching in the wilderness. Went through this a few months ago. In 1 verses 9 to 12, John baptizes Jesus. Now, around the same time that that's going on, flip back over to Mark 6, and what you're going to see in verse number 18 is, for John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John is testifying to Herod's sin. Okay, in 6 and verse 19, Herodias has a grudge against John because he's pointing out their sin very publicly. Okay, and then 6 and verse 20, Herod is afraid of John. Flip back over to chapter 1, and what you find is, in verse 13, is that Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, and then verse 14 of chapter 1 and verse 17 of chapter 6 have the same event nailed down. They say, after John is arrested, Jesus comes preaching the gospel. In verse 17 of chapter 6 and verse 14 of chapter 1, it's the same point, even though Mark puts them at two ends of a story, if you like. Uh, Moving on. Lost my place. There it is. And then in 1 verse uh, 14 and 6 verse 6, after Jesus, John's arrest, Jesus, is a, Jesus comes preaching the gospel and so on. In 1 and verse 38, it describes Jesus' ministry going into the villages and synagogues all over Galilee. He's preaching. He's casting out demons. He preaches the gospel. He calls disciples. He cleanses lepers. He casts out demons. He heals the sick and the paralyzed. He debates with Pharisees. He taught in the parables. He displayed his power over death and disease and storms. And all the while this is going on, John is stuck in the dungeon, the bottom of Herod's basement, and Herod's going down there on a regular basis, and I can see them sit in the dungeon, and Herod pulls up a chair, and he sits and listens to John. And John explains all of the gospel to him, and Herod is perplexed. He can't figure out, he can't grasp the truth that John is speaking, and yet the Bible says he enjoyed listening to him. All the while Jesus is out there doing his ministry, this is going on back at Herod's home, okay? Then in 6 and verse 1 to 6, Jesus is rejected by his own family and his hometown in the Nazareth synagogue. And then in verse 6, the last part there, he continues teaching in the villages of Galilee. By the way, in the book of Mark, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, that's the last time that Mark records that John, Jesus, sorry, ever goes into a synagogue. From that point onwards, he's out in the fields and then the villages amongst the people, but he does not go back into synagogues until the very end when he goes into the temple and, and that part of his story. But his ministry in synagogues kind of finishes there. The people have rejected him and pushed him out. While Jesus is traveling as a disciple, we've already told about this, that Herod had John in prison and he was afraid of him. He knew he was a righteous man and so on. And then a day comes and Herod gives a banquet for his birthday and all the, the top men of the town come in to have this, this time together, this party, uh, Herodias' daughter. If you've got an NIV Bible, you've got one little leg up. In, in leg, Mark 6, 
It has a very interesting phrase. We'll look at it next week in more detail. But it says in verse 21, a strategic day in my Bible. The NIV says an opportune time came. And I think what it was is Herodias was watching this whole thing and she was determined to get rid of John and she saw the opportunity. So Herod gives this big banquet, all the people are there. Herodias' daughter comes in, she dances, she pleases the men. You can read into that. Most people suggest it was some sort of a sexual dance that she did. And Herod makes this dumb, foolish vow which he has no business giving and he's going to give her up to half her kingdom and so on. And then Herod goes and sadly has John beheaded in the prison and they come back and they give their head to Herodias and all the rest of it. Now, right shortly after that happens, you jump back up in the book to 6 and verses 7 to 11, and Jesus calls the disciples together. He teaches them all about what it means to go out in ministry, and then he sends them out two by two. So that first, if you can go down your Bible, uh, verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 13 happen after verse 28, 29, and before verse 30. They're not chronologically arranged. You say, why did Mark do this? What was his point? What he's doing is he's weaving together these two stories, John's ministry, John's suffering, and John's death, and he's weaving it into the stories of Jesus' ministry and the disciples' early ministry because he wants him to go out into ministry on a mission with this shadow of death hanging over them. He wants them to realize that when they step out and they begin to preach and minister, they do so under the news that John had been beheaded by Herod because of his testimony to the truth. He puts a cross-shaped shadow across the whole beginning of the book so everybody reading it will understand. Listen, a call to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is more than just enjoying the benefits. A call to be a disciple of Christ is to come and follow in Christ to die to self to die to sin, and so on. All right, now, I want to show you something else. You know, I was just enjoying this. I, I've got to share it with you. It was looking at the idea that uh, John and Jesus and the foreshadowing, and I've actually outlined it all for you on the sheet there, so one side has some no points. The back side has that foreshadowing there, and I want to go through it and show you because it's a neat picture. And I want you to see, it's a little practical lesson for you reading your Bible. We often read, or if you're like me and and some others, you read by the details, right? You just hone right in on a verse and you just get all the little words and you're so busy with that one little verse. One of the problems is, one of the things we need to do is push back a little bit, pull ourselves up to kind of about 10,000 feet and see the broad picture. And it's a beautiful picture. And the way that Scripture weaves ideas and thoughts and, and passages together and you see bigger, grander, epic stories... Who here likes epic movies beside me? Oh, good. A couple people like epic movies. Big, huge stories. Big, huge heads. I like that. And in a sense, what I want to do this morning is give you kind of a grand epic picture of how John's life foreshadows Jesus. And it also sets in place a pattern for how we as disciples are to live. So, beginning, you got on the top of your note sheet there. John's commission foreshadows Jesus and the disciples' commission. Both of them, both John and Jesus, are sent by God. In Mark 1, verse 2, John is sent to preach repentance before Jesus comes. Now, it doesn't say it in Mark, but in John 17, in verse 18, Jesus has been sent into the world. What for? 
to preach the gospel. That's why he came. And then in Mark 16, 15, what happens? The disciples are sent out again by God to preach the gospel. John's life foreshadows Jesus' life and sets a pattern for our lives. Okay, next one, number two, John's ministry foreshadows Jesus and the disciples' ministry. In Mark 1, verse 4, John was, re- sorry, Mark 1, verse 4, John preached repentance and godliness. And then in Mark 1, verse 15, what does Jesus do? His ministry is to preach repentance and faith and godliness. In Mark 6 through 12, and 12, sorry, the disciples, disciples. The disciples go out and they preach repentance and faith and godliness. Thirdly, John's rejection foreshadows Jesus' rejection. In Mark 6, 26 and 27, John is rejected by Herod, his political ruler. In Mark 6, 1 through 6, Jesus is rejected by his family and his hometown. And the end of his life, in Mark 15, Jesus again is rejected by his nation's leaders and rulers. You see the way he's doing? The life of John foreshadows Jesus' life and it patterns our life for us. And the readers of Mark's gospel at the beginning would have picked up on some of these things and said, why has he put the stories like that? He didn't just do them because it was chronological, because it clearly wasn't. There's a point behind it. And the point, I think, is for us is this, is we've got to pick up on the idea that discipleship is so much more than the benefits. It is the benefits. Don't take that away. You can hang on to those. Those are good. But it's also following Christ and all of what that meant. We'll talk about more as we go on. Uh, number four, John's arrest foreshadows Jesus' arrest. In Mark 6, 19 through 20, John's arrest was motivated by the grudge of Herodias and the fear of Herod. In Mark 3 and all the way to 15, all those chapters in there, you see again and again and again, the, Jews, the Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, all the chief priests, they hated Jesus. They were striving again and again to get rid of him. And he was their arrest. Sorry, Jesus' arrest, I get excited about stuff like this, you pardon me. Uh, Jesus' arrest was motivated by fear and jealous hatred of the Jews, just like John's was motivated by fear and jealousy and grudge of Herodias and Herod. And then in Acts 5 and verse 28, what happens? The disciples are arrested, and you know what the motive of the Jews is? You're going to bring his death on us. They mo- their arrest of them is motivated again by fear. It foreshadows and it patterns. Number five, John's death foreshadows Jesus' death. I just I couldn't get around this. It struck me as so amazing. Both John and Jesus died unlawfully. Mark 6, 23 and 24, John died at the vicious whim of a woman who was angry. Take his head, bring on a platter. And Herod, in fear of the man he was in the party with, in fear of his oaths, in fear of the woman, he has John beheaded. There's not one legal reason why John should have been beheaded. He shouldn't have even been in prison. Mark 15, Jesus died against Pilate's legal finding. What did Pilate say? I find no fault. What's he done? Nothing. And then he turns him over to him anyway. And he's brutally killed 
Both John and Jesus, Jesus died violently in Mark 6, 28 and 29. John was beheaded in a dungeon with a sword. In Mark 15, Jesus was crucified in the most horrific way any man can imagine to kill some other man. And then 12 of the 13 disciples all through history, all but one of them died a violent death. Mark himself, by the way, I don't know if you knew this, Mark was tied between two teams of horses and dragged apart. That's how he died. John's death foreshadows Jesus' death, and John's death and life also foreshadowed and patterned the disciples' life and death. The people reading this in Rome, as they got the letter, the news would have come within probably months that Mark had been brutally martyred for his faith in Christ. And the cross-shaped shadow would have had a different meaning, a much deeper meaning for them. Both John and Jesus died alone in, in John in a dungeon all by himself. He is beheaded. Jesus died on a cross alone. Jesus was abandoned by all of his friends. He was betrayed by one. He was denied by another. He was deserted by the chief priests, the scribes, and the rulers that should have fought for his protection. He's declared innocent by Pilate, the Roman governor, and then handed over anyway. He's delivered over to death by his father. He's delivered further to executioners by his own people. He's crucified by an enemy-occupying force, and finally he's buried in a borrowed tomb. The reality is... That John's death was a shadow, but it was the slightest shadow of Jesus. What an amazing Savior we have. As we were talking about, and you were reading that verse, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Just stopping and thinking about blood that ran down a cross, that ran out of my Savior's hands for me and for you. It ought to stagger our minds. It ought to cause us to stop and to weep. To think that what Jesus suffered for us. And finally, John's burial foreshadows Jesus' burial. In Mark 6, 29, two faithful disciples come. They take his body and they bury it. And in Mark 15, 42 to 47, Jesus sorry, is buried by Joseph and Nicodemus. They come and they take his body and they bury it in a borrowed tomb. The life, the ministry, the suffering and death of John the Baptist foreshadows Jesus' life, his ministry, his suffering and his death. The life and ministry of John the Baptist also provides a pattern for us. We've got to get a hold of this. Why would Mark write a story like that? Why would he do it? I think there's a couple of reasons. Number one, I think he writes to tell the story of Christ to proclaim him. He begins off, what's he say? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He wants to declare to everybody who will listen that Jesus is more than just some carpenter that died on a cross at the hands of the Romans. He wants to declare him to everybody that will listen that he is the Son of the living God. He writes to give a defense of the gospel of Christ to the unbeliever, the critic who is reading. It's both evangelistic and apologetic. He's explaining and he's proclaiming Christ. But he is also, Mark is also a loving pastor of his people. And he writes to the readers who are about to are already experiencing persecution as a direct result of their faith and discipleship for Christ. He writes to instruct them. Put myself in Mark's head and go, reader, you're not the first to experience persecution, suffering, and death. John and the Lord Jesus suffered it. Mark writes to warn them. Following Christ is more than a spectator sport. 
Reader, following Christ involves absolute and total commitment to Jesus Christ. Discipleship could possibly include rejection by loved ones as Jesus endured. It could mean hatred by those who oppose the gospel as both John and Jesus and most most of the disciples experienced. It means abandonment by friends. It means a possibility of death, unjust, unfair, untimely, but death all the same. Discipleship to Jesus Christ means 100% commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and God. The reading of the Bible, the more I read it, and the more I read church history and listen to the, the stories of the men of old who suffered for their faith, I never once get the idea that discipleship and following Christ is a part-time job or a pastime or hobby. Something you do on weekends when you've got nothing better to do. That's not it. In fact, the more I read the stories of Mark and Paul and John and those other men of God, the the sense I get, the strongest sense I get is it's a 100% call to our whole lives. But it's not a miserable call. Mark also writes to encourage him. Reader, discipleship also means sharing with Christ not only in his suffering and in death, but also in his unspeakable joy. We've been studying Hebrews at school, written similar time to Mark, maybe, maybe earlier, maybe later, written to similar people, and probably to Rome. And this is what it says in Hebrews 12 about Jesus. It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and Mark is writing him saying, listen, guys, the Lord Jesus who has gone on ahead, you made the great point, he's gone home to be with his father. The disciples have already died for their faith. Others have already been martyred for their faith. Even John, all of us as believers, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone on ahead. And the writer of Hebrews says, listen, since we have that, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, even if the race, the far end of it, has a cross standing there or a sword or a bullet. You realize right now the greatest place of revival in the Christian church, you know where it is? Syria. It's amazing. People are having their heads cut off with butcher knives and there are more people coming to Christ in those parts of the world than anywhere else in the world right now. Why? Because they're seeing Christianity lived out in flesh and blood. And that's what this world needs to see. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of her faith, who for the joy, not just the miserable hardship of it. No, the joy of it. The joy set before him. He endured the cross. He despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. John foreshadows Christ in his life, his ministry, his suffering, and his death, but John also shared with Christ in his joy. As I read the story, I kind of soaked myself in the story of Herod and Pilate and kind of kind of put myself right in John's shoes and sat where he sat. What, what got to me was this. Herod's kind of nee, 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 all over the place. He's, he's bothered by this. He's worried by this. He's scared of that. He's scared of this. John's just, <clears throat> he's a rock. Yeah, we know he sent questions to Jesus. It comes up in the book of John, I think it is. But sitting in that dungeon, the sense you get as you read the book of Mark is he was absolutely steadfast because his fear was in God not in man. John foreshadows Christ in his life and his death and so on. It's a joyful sharing in Christ. It's not a giddy 
silly joy, not a happiness so much. It's joy based in the deep understanding that God is pleased with him and with his walk. And it's a joy we will have when we realize that God is pleased with us when we follow Christ the way that he's called us to follow him. Discipleship is joyfully sharing with Christ, sharing his life, his ministry, his suffering, and his death. Listen, if you forget everything else, remember this part. In our day, we have made discipleship about coming and inheriting all the benefits and blessings of what Christ has done for us. It's like Christ. The master chef in the back room is working and slaving to prepare a giant meal for us to come in and without any investment of time or labor to enjoy all the benefits of it. And in a sense, he has. And the benefits of salvation, the benefits of knowing God and being reconciled to God are great things that we can enjoy. But you know what? It isn't just about coming in and sitting down and feasting and filling our faces and maybe grumpily handing the potatoes down a little bit or maybe washing a dish. It's an invitation to come in, to put the towel around our waists and join with Christ and serve and share. Join with his life. Join with the holiness and the righteousness that he wants us to have is also joining with his ministry. Speaking up like John spoke up. Speaking up like Christ spoke up. John did all those things. He shared with Christ in every one of them. I was just thinking about earlier, much earlier this morning, about John's age. It just suddenly hit me. A priest begins ministry at 30 years of age. Right? That's when he goes into service in the temple. John was born, as best I can tell, nine months or six months about thereabouts ahead of Jesus. So they would have been about the same age, 30 years of age. So the very time that Jesus is supposed to go, or sorry, John's supposed to go into ministry in the temple, where is he? He's out in the wilderness, completely alone with God. He puts aside all of those things he could have enjoyed as the son of a priest to enjoy his priestly ministry, to feast off all the benefits of the sacrifice and that whole system. And he comes out of the wilderness and he's preaching the gospel. He knows what it is to be totally alone with God. He survives entirely by God's provision, the locust and the wild honey. And at just the right time, for just a few, what I can tell, maybe a month, two months, tops, that's all he has. And God allows him to preach and to minister. And he's taken out of the public eye and put in a dungeon. And he lives there for who knows how long, a couple months maybe, and before he dies. John knew what it is. He knew what it was not just to have the benefits of sharing with Christ, but also to share in his ministry, in his humility, in Christ's shame, in Christ's service. He shared in Christ's sufferings. What about Paul? I mean, it must have been about 6 o'clock this morning. What about Paul? Listen, take your Bibles, flip over to Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 21. I want to read this great passage, uh, Philippians 3, verse 7. We'll read down to verse 21. I'm going to stop as we kind of make a few points as we go. He says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. Can I ask you a question? Are we doing that? Ask us a question. Let me put it right. Are we doing that? 
Are we willing to say, I count all things but loss that I may gain Christ? I'm not there. But by God's grace, I hope and pray that we get there. And we can say, you know what? Whatever it is that makes me somebody or something, I will willingly and happily push it away that I might gain Christ. I'll remove every barrier between me and the Lord that I might gain him, that I might know him like Paul did. Listen to what he says. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the Lord, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him. And how many of us stop reading right there? We want to know Christ, don't we? Is that wrong? Of course not. But look what Paul says. He goes further. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What's that mean? The power to live the new life in Christ. The power to be filled with the spirit of God and live in victory walking with Christ and more. He says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's exactly what we're talking about. Sharing with Christ all the way. Not just to know him, that deep, intimate, personal knowledge, that loving relationship that all of us have been brought into. But it's so much more than that. It's knowing the fellowship, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And no, not being able to find a parking spot is not sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Sorry. It's so much more than that. We're talking about suffering as a direct result of our testimony for Jesus Christ. John suffered because he stood up and he preached the truth and he would not back down. The fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul was beheaded with a sword. He knew something of it. Peter was crucified upside down. He knew something of it too. Look what he says in verse 11. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also Christ was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I reach forward to what lies ahead. I press on. What's he saying? He's saying what I'm trying to say. Let's us as believers put behind what's gone behind. Let's realize that discipleship is not about the benefits and the blessings. It is. That's part of it. But that's not the sum total of it. Let's not buy into the 21st century idea that discipleship is just about getting all my benefits from Christ and and, and striving to get everything from me. Because that's what we've been sold. What's we've been taught and told. It's having all those benefits that Christ gives us, hanging on to them, but it's joining behind Christ. It's stepping into the footsteps that he walked and walking where he wanted. It was walking with Jesus Christ, going out on mission with the disciples and realizing that as they went out and preached and proclaimed repentance and the truth, they were doing exactly what John did and he died for it. It was going all the way to Jerusalem and standing outside the city walls and watching Jesus up on a cross, knowing that if I follow Christ, I could wind up there too. Paul was saying, you know what? I put those things behind. I'm pressing forward. I want to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death. Look what he says more. 
verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are mature, have this attitude. And if anything else, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern. What's he saying? Look at John. Look at Jesus. Look at Mark. Look at Paul. They set an example for us. The question is, are we going to step out? Now, I hate to break it to you, but that was my introduction. And and it's now, whatever it is, 12 o'clock almost. And I got three, four points I want to make, believe it or not. But I'm going to make them very, very quickly. What do we do with all this? What do we take away from it? Discipleship, number one, it's on the back side of your sheet. Come and share in Christ's life of godliness. That's what John did. Herod looked at him and said he was afraid of him. Why? Holy and a righteous man. That was his testimony by an unbeliever. We'll unpack that more next week. Number one, come and share in Christ's life of godliness. Number two, come and share in Christ's life of ministry. God called and sent John to faithfully preach the gospel. God called and sent Jesus to faithfully preach the gospel. God called and sent the disciples to do the same thing. And faithful gospel ministry is calling sin, sin. Jesus called Herod's sin of incest unlawful. That's sin. And he didn't hesitate no matter who it was. He talked to soldiers, political rulers, whoever they were. He identified their sin. He called it for what it was. That's faithful gospel ministry. Number two, it's calling men to repentance. Come and grieve over your sin and turn back to God. Number three, it's calling for the fruit that comes from a changed lifestyle. What do you say to the soldiers? Go and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What's he saying? Go and live like those who are sorry for the sin they have committed and have sought forgiveness for. Change your life. We don't preach the gospel. Come and be saved and live any way you like. Come as you are and stay as you are. That is not the biblical gospel no matter what. The biblical gospel is come and be changed radically and dramatically. Number three, come and share in Christ's life of suffering. God delivered John to suffer suffer and be persecuted as a result of his ministry. God delivered Jesus to suffer persecution as a result of ministry. God delivered the disciples and the apostles to suffer persecution and or imprisonment as a result of ministry. God, down through the history of the church, has delivered hundreds of thousands of men and women to shed blood and die as a part of ministry. It's not a message we like. You want to empty a church quick? Preach this everywhere you go. Because we don't want to hear it. And you know what? Look, for me personally, I wrestle with it. I really do. There's a part of me that says, no, 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 no. I like the idea of the American church. You know, big, flashy salaries, chauffeur-driven limousine, something like that. Sounds good to me, right? That's not what we're called to. I like the idea of an easy life, a comfortable ministry life. Sounds good. Be a pastor. They don't do anything. They don't work for a living. They just hang around and and visit people and drink coffee. Sounds fun, doesn't it? You know what? That's not the life we were called to. That's not the life Christ is calling you or me to. 
And I stop, I hesitate. There's a piece of me that goes mm, inside when I think about these things. Not only do I realize that I will be tested on it, but I realize this is what God has called us to. The whole book of Mark, the whole of the New Testament is just overshadowed by a cross. And we, for some reason, in our 21st century American Western Christianity, I don't mean America to pick on them, I mean Western Christianity, have pulled that out and said, let's put that aside where it's not so visible. Let's just cover that up with some nice greenery. Let's have a Christianity that's all about happiness and giddiness and, and, and moving emotion. Discipleship, biblically, the more I read, the more I study, the more I spend time with the Lord, what comes back again and again and again is discipleship, biblically, is a call to pick up a cross and follow. Number four, come and share in Christ's death. God called John and commissioned him to die in a dungeon. God sent Jesus into a world to die on a cross. God called and commissioned Paul and the other apostles to die violent deaths for him. And God has called and commissioned hundreds of thousands, even millions now, to die for their faith. And there are more Christians now dying for their faith than any other time in history. God is calling us to come and follow him. And I'm going to give you three ways to do it. Number one, come and die to self first. See, why that? There was a, a time in the church, a history of the church, when um, persecution was going on. And lots of brave, young and old people decided they wanted to be persecuted. They wanted to be martyred for their faith as a great testimony to what they believed. And sadly, the history records that many of those who volunteered for that turned back. And the writers of the early church said, don't go looking for persecution. Don't go looking to be martyred for your faith. Go with a full expectation that it might happen. But the only way, I believe, that we will ever stand that test is, number one, if we have first died to self. Because if we're not dying to self, we'll never die for Christ If we're not dying to the world, we'll never die for Christ. Because if the world's got an attraction, there's a problem. But when Christ is my ultimate attraction, my desire is to be with him. Deb was praying earlier about that we might be like him. Go out changed to be more like Christ. And that means dying to self, dying to sin, and dying to the world. What am I trying to say? Discipleship is not just about the benefits that Christ has purchased for us. It does include that. But discipleship is a call to come and walk with Jesus, to walk with Jesus under the shadow of a cross. Those disciples, it just kind of hit me a few minutes ago, and I said it out loud. They went out on mission knowing full well that the testimony that they were preaching to anybody who would listen was the same testimony that John had just been beheaded for. It was real to them. But they went out. Mark crafts his gospel under a looming shadow of a cross. John lived and walked and ministered under its shadow. Jesus and the disciples ministered, moving ever closer from now until Mark 15 till they stand at the foot of a cross. Paul lived and ministered under the ever-darkening, ever-lengthening shadow of a cross until he was beheaded on the Apian Way. The question becomes, are we willing to come? Die to self, die to this world, die to sin, pick up a cross and follow Jesus. 
Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we'll have one more song. Loving Father, we give you thanks again for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, just standing here and thinking about some of the things we've said and the cross that Jesus bore, the blood that ran down free. Father, to realize again and be challenged, myself, Lord, but for all of us, Lord, to be challenged. The life of discipleship that we have been called to walk in is a life of tremendous joy, tremendous blessing, tremendous benefit. It is, Lord. Father, if I've downplayed that too much, wipe it from their memories. But Father, also help us to get a real, solid grasp that the life of a Christian is a cross-shaped life. It's a life of death to self. Father, help me, help us all to die to self, to put Christ first in everything. Father, help us all as a people of God to die to sin, to recognize those sins that are encumbering and tripping us up and weighing us down and stopping us from falling, to push them aside that we might fasten our eyes on Christ and follow him. Father, we pray, we plead with you, O God, that you would do a great work amongst this company of people. Father, we ask at the beginning that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your word. Father, help us to see Jesus and see him afresh. See him in sharper vision, in clearer vision than ever before. Father, help our eyes to be lifted up off our circumstances and our problems and ourselves and to see Christ. Father, help us to see him on a cross, but also to see him risen and ascended in glory. Father, we would indeed follow John's words and behold the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And Father, beholding it to be changed radically and completely. Oh God, we lift up his name. And we would say this morning, Father, that we love him for what he has done for us. We love him, O God, that he was willing to go to a cross. We love him that he was willing to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That we might be reconciled. That we might turn and set foot behind him and follow him. Father, we ask you for your blessing and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.